Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hey, hello, how is your January going? I hope it is happy and not too grey and depressing. Are you doing dry January? Hopefully not. Anyway, regardless, dry or not dry, I bring you a fantastic episode today. I'm talking with certified sommelier and wine personality Amanda McCrossin, who is going to just show us the tip of the iceberg of her extensive wine knowledge of Napa Valley in California. So stick around because also her accent is so much better than mine, so you'll enjoy listening to her. But let's start, as I always do, with my winery of the week. So I've gone with one of the most iconic wineries out of California, and that is Robert Mondavi. So I think it's fair to say that Robert Mondavi is one of the biggest single influences in Californian wine history. Robert Mondavi had a plan to create a winery that was going to be world class up there with the best wineries in the world and he certainly succeeded. So this winery was established in 1966 and prior to that he was working with his family in the Charles Krug winery which is an incredibly iconic winery in itself dating back to 1861 and Charles Krug when he founded this winery was an absolute pioneer for the Californian wine industry. So these two wineries are certainly ones worth knowing about. So after a few years working at Charles Krug Winery, he left to start working on his vision. One of the biggest decisions he made was to build the winery around the Tucolon Vineyard in Oakville. And this is now considered one of the first growth vineyards in the world. Now he believed that in Napa Valley, this was the place where everybody could enjoy the good life. So wine, food and art. If you go to this winery, which is just beautiful, they have a permanent collection of paintings, art, sculptures. They have a restaurant which you can enjoy. And certainly if you pick the major tasting menu, you can have back vintage of the last four decades, I believe. They've also got annual summer concerts. So really, it's no surprise that this year in the World's Best Vineyard Awards, they won fifth place out of all the vineyards in the world and instantly that makes them number one in terms of vineyards in Northern America. Now I have to mention their chief winemaker. She's French. Her name is Geneviève Janssens. She studied in France under one of the best winemakers of the 19th century. That's Emile Peinot. So definitely go check him out. She spent several years as director of production for Opus One, which is Robert Mondavi's joint project with Baron Philippe de Rothschild. And in 2010, wine enthusiast named her winemaker of the year. She's an incredible woman and she makes incredible wines. Now, if you're following me on Instagram, that's at eat sleep underscore wine repeat, you'll see for Christmas Day... I was drinking Robert Mondavi Reserve Pinot Noir 2015 and also the Reserve to Colon Vineyard Fumé Blanc 2015. And I love the Fumé Blanc so much. We're going to crack open another bottle now. However, side note, <laughs> what is Fumé Blanc? Now, Fumé Blanc is a Sauvignon Blanc 
typically oaked, but it doesn't have to be. Now, it was actually Robert Mondavi who coined this term. So fumé means smoked. You may have heard of puy fumé, which is a Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley. And then he used the word blanc because blanc means white. And the reason for that he created this term fumé blanc was simply because back in the late 1960s, Sauvignon Blanc was just considered pretty boring. And so he wanted to take Sauvignon Blanc put it in oak and make it a high quality exciting wine of which he did many people then continued to follow suit Robert Mondavi really is an innovator so most Fumé Blancs you will find have some sort of oak aging but it doesn't have to be and in terms of US law Fumé Blanc and Sauvignon Blanc are interchangeable okay (laughs) enough talking and more pouring Oh my god, I just simply love this wine. This is not a cheap wine, unfortunately. This really is a celebration wine. This is £50 from vinum.co.uk. It smells like mandarins and walking through a meadow, like a little bit of honey blossom and beautiful tropical fruits like mangoes and pineapples. It's so aromatic, it's so pretty, and it's so kind of voluptuous at the same time. You can smell the oak aging, which I believe the fermentation happens in French oak barrels. There's about nine months or so lees aging and about twice weekly batonnage, so that hand stirring of the lees to give real creaminess. But definitely for anybody who has only ever had New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, that pungent, overly tropical style, it's nothing like that. It's also nothing like a flinty mineral puifume, as I mentioned from the Loire Valley or even Sancerre. So none of these. (laughs) Mm. All this gorgeous citrus fruits comes through. So like pink grapefruit, it's really zesty, lovely high lifted acidity. The texture is very, very soft, is actually surprisingly light. I'd still say it's more medium bodied, but very, very crisp in a way. I didn't expect it to be as, um, with this ability to kind of just dance around my tongue. It's lively. It's got that nice mineral kiss to it, something a little bit flinty, and even a slight a slight herbal note, like a touch of grass, but it's more about those beautiful citric fruits on the palate. Super refreshing, nice and almost apricotty. I had this on Christmas Day. We had pheasant and it worked really, really well. You know, pheasant is kind of similar to chicken, but it's got a little bit more of an earthy oomph to it. And we had some apricot and hazelnut stuffing. And oh my God, this was just divine. So anyone looking for a very, very special treat, think about this Fourmé Blanc. It really is gorgeous. Right, enough of me tasting wine, enough of Robert Mondavi, although I could never get enough. Let's go over to the chat with Amanda, who you're going to see is an absolute superstar. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining me. I'm really pleased that you found some time and we can talk about Napa Valley and your love for wine. I am thrilled to be here, especially talking about my favourite subject. Yeah, well, I'm glad actually that we picked Napa because if I threw you off and said, let's talk about Croatian wine, you might not be as passionate, right? (laughs) I might be at a loss for words for once in my life. (laughs) To be honest, me too. I kind of go Croatia, (laughs) there's a bit of Riesling and then then I'm done. (laughs) Let's stick with Napa because I also am a little bit better with Napa. So 
please, can you just, I suppose, introduce yourself a little bit? People may already know you. They may have seen the Somme Vivant YouTube videos. They may have seen you on Instagram, or they may have even heard you on a podcast recently. So you're doing so much across the medias right now. So people can totally find you. What is it that you're doing and how did you get there? Sum that up in two minutes. Go for it. Done. Hold your history. Go. Boom. And I, I love how you say Som Vivon. It's my Instagram name, but, you know, I find the, the Europeans say it so much better than I can. But oh, really? Yes, Som some oh. Vivant? Am I saying it different well, to you? I, well, you just say it so beautifully and musically. Som Vivant? Som Vivant? Now I'm just putting on a French accent. Okay, carry on. <laughs> I, I like it. You know, it's, my accent's very American. but Well, of course I, um, it should be. <laughs> so I I am I am the Sambivant. I have been living in Napa Valley for about five years now, but my start was not in wine. I actually started in theater and film and TV and got into wine while I was living in New York City. So you because- are a wine superstar. Secretly, behind secretly. the scenes. <laughs> secretly, not so secretly, not so secretly, yeah. <laughs> but I, I got into wine there and really fell in love with everything that the the lifestyle and the culture was surrounding mm-hmm. it, and mm-hmm. ended up in Napa Valley, which is really just the most amazing place truly in the world. And I find myself so lucky to to be there. And while I'm not there presently uh, because of all the things that are happening as it pertains to COVID. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm closer to family at the moment. It is my home base and it is the place that I sort of cut my teeth and learned about Napa Valley in a way that was just, you know, for me, the best way to learn, which is hands-on. Mm-hmm. So yeah. mm-hmm. I started working as a sommelier at a restaurant called Press, which is yes. right in the heart of Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's an amazing place. I always joke that I didn't really know how cool it was until I actually arrived. <laughs> got the job, which was probably better because I didn't fangirl the restaurant too hard. But Uh it was really an amazing opportunity that I got unbeknownst to me at the time. And so I started working at Press, which is the restaurant that holds the largest, deepest restaurant collection of Napa Valley wines in the world. Mm. So the entire Mm -hmm. list is comprised of Napa Valley going back into the 1960s. And of course, being that we're in the heart of Napa Valley in St. Helena, the provenance of the wines was just superior. I mean, wines that were had never been moved since their since their birth. I mean, really since bottling, they were coming direct from cellars or from the wineries themselves, which okay, that's was special. very, very special. Yes. Yeah, it was really cool. I've seen a picture, because that's as close I'm getting to Napa right now. I've seen a picture of the kind of wine cellar in Press Restaurant. And yeah, that is pretty impressive. So I can only imagine how it feels just to walk in there every day. And well, I, I'm sure you're not going to the 1960 collection every day, but knowing it's there, these little gems. Well, that's the thing. We were. I mean, this is sort of what oh. made the the job and the place so special is it wasn't just this like museum wine list that nobody ever touched. We were opening these bottles left and right every single night. So on okay. any given night, you know, I'm opening 60s Inglenook, 70s BV. Uh, uh, now I'm Creek. jealous. Yeah. And, you know, these uh. are things that the rest of the world isn't able to see or, mm-hmm. or to drink. And, you know, we're just sort of opening them willy nilly. And, and of course it being in Napa Valley, like I said, we were getting people drinking them that were some pretty important people in the business. So not just the vintners and the winemakers of Napa Valley who maybe had a hand in these wines, mm. but, you know, Robert Parker often came to visit, um, Stephen Spurrier. I mean, the guys oh, that wow. really made Napa what it was were actually drinking these wines. So, you know, we're, we're cracking these cool bottles. There's 
very, very interesting people coming the restaurant left and right. And then, you know, on top of that, I'm living in the heart of Napa Valley. So in the mornings, I'm going out in the vineyards and I'm talking to winemakers and I'm going mm-hmm. to work at night and opening these bottles. And so it just sort of got to the point where I was like, I should be sharing this. Like this shouldn't just live with one person, right? So yes. it was sort of it was sort of twofold because I was going into work every night and, and guests were asking me where to visit in Napa Valley, which winery should I go to? Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I needed a compendium for that. So I sort of took, you know, this this need to document what was happening on my life in a daily basis and combined that with a clear need that people had when it came to visiting Napa Valley and where to go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let me just pick up a camera and see what happens. And that was sort of the origin story of my YouTube channel, which, you know, at first featured a different winery every day that I would go and shoot and I'd edit the videos myself. And then my Instagram, mm-hmm. which would be a collection of some of the wines we were opening, the wineries we were visiting, the stories that I had and and the things that were happening in my life. And so that started sort of a, a life of its own related to what I was doing at press. I was essentially running two businesses at once. I guess I wasn't running the press wine list at the time, but working two <laughs> full-time working. jobs, I guess mm-hmm. is a better say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's how some Vivant started. And, and like oh. I said, having a, a background in theater, you know, it may be a little bit better equipped to, I guess, be on camera to some degree, but I just loved what I was doing and it all just felt very tied together. And I found that the, the content side of my career really was the one that was starting to Mm. take more of my time. And so coincidentally, right before the pandemic and the shutdown started, I I gave notice at press. Um, I had worked as a sommelier. Well, I had worked as a sommelier for about three and a half years. And then Mm. I took over as wine director after my my mentors, Scott and Kelly, who had uh, run the wine program for... um, I think almost a decade by that point, they, oh, wow. they were okay. very kind to gave me the keys. And so I, I ran it. And then, uh, so it was about five years total that I was at press five, oh, five years okay. and change. Five lovely, um, exciting, magical years, it seems. Oh, truly. I mean, it was the place where I got to learn everything that I know about Napa Valley. You know, it's, I think it's the place that I probably learned the most when it comes mm-hmm. to wine and I have the best memories from there, but yeah, I think these days I'm just uh, not just I'm I'm creating content and doing a, a podcast now uh, called Wine Access Unfiltered and doing stuff on Instagram and creating content on YouTube. So I'm staying busy in a very virtual world. I don't oh. know what it is I actually do for a living, but that is what I'm <laughs> keeping myself busy with. I don't think we need to know what we're doing in life. Sometimes, you know, why do we have to have <laughs> names for everything? I don't know. Anyway, so you go with the flow, but truly for everyone listening, I have seen the way you talk about wine and people will see this as we discuss more Napa Valley. You have an amazing way to show that passion and make wine exciting. So absolutely you'll do fantastic things even more when you focus on entirely creating this content oh well thank you I appreciate that no you're welcome now let's talk about Napa a little bit now you found that lots of people were asking you questions when they would come in into your restaurant they Mm -hmm. were already in Napa was there a specific question that they had more often than not was it always just where shall I go or were people asking you questions about the mountains versus the fertile soils and the valley floor (laughs) were people very geeky when they were coming into Napa to your restaurant Well, that's the thing about Napa is it's always such a, it's not like, you know, some obscure region that I think only wine geeks go to. Napa Valley, at least, 
you know, for us in the States. And I think, you know, to an extent, the rest of the world as well, because our clientele was certainly very international. I think because it is this sort of destination, you know, plays bucket list place that people always mm. dream of going to, whether it's because they love wine or they just, you know, they want to go there on their honeymoon or, mm. you know, there, there are sommeliers that want to learn more about California wine. I think Napa Valley is this place where we would really have a wide spectrum of different knowledge levels and things that people wanted to achieve while they were there. And so it's a little bit, you know, we sort of tease, like it's, it's sort of like Las Vegas in some ways, like, you know, we say like <laughs> Las Vegas is the place, like, you know, you think of it for a place for gambling, right? But like, there's so much to do there in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. And I don't know if you've been to Vegas, but like, I know people who have. <laughs> yeah. And there's like great shows and there's great food. And, you know, I'm told there's great golfing and spas. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, Napa Valley is, is a similar situation. You know, we're definitely known for our wine, but what I was finding is that people were coming in and so it was table to table we really didn't have the same questions being asked over and over although I will say the one that was asked most of me was where's the best winery to visit and that was always the hardest to answer because they're all so different there are literally (laughs) no two wineries that are the same and you sort of go for different reasons you know and and so the first question was always like well you know how much time do you want to spend there is Mm. this a place that you really want to get to know the winemaker or are you just like looking to chill and have a couple glasses of Sauvignon Blanc with great scenery? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, they are going to be very different experiences. And that's what's so interesting about Napa is even though it's such a small place, we're only I'm sorry, I'm going to speak in miles, but we're only 30 miles. No, no we do miles. Uh, we do miles oh, good. officially. Okay. <laughs> UK. We're good. Oh, great. All right. Well, silly me. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's 30 miles north to south and five mm-hmm. miles across. So it's not very big, but it is very diverse. And yes. and within that, you have little pockets of places everywhere from Spring Mountain to Coombsville to, you know, the hotter, more intense wines of like Oakville and, and St. Helena and Rutherford. When people would ask, where should I go to visit? It would always sort of unveil a lot of other questions and it would create mm. this conversation. And so it, what was nice about working at Press, and I don't know, I mean, you were assimilated as a steakhouse as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you had this luxury, but I was definitely felt very fortunate that my only job in the restaurant was to talk to tables about wine and to sell them wine, Mm -hmm. which was just the best because when people sat down, they really had this sort of like one-on-one experience and whether or not they wanted to deep dive about 60s vintages of Inglenook or what, you know, whether they wanted to talk about like, well, who was making this wine in 1987 and where did the fruit come from? Like if they wanted to really geek out on that we had the time to do that or if they just were like two honeymooners and they just wanted to talk about you know their favorite place to have some cheese and wine like we could totally go down that rabbit hole too Mm -hmm. so if people were saying to you they wanted just to as you said sip a Sauvignon Blanc and just see something beautiful in what parts having never been to Napa myself Mm -hmm. where do you feel in terms of scenery is there a few places that really are jaw-droppingly beautiful oh there's plenty I mean (laughs) I knew you were just like everywhere they're all yeah they're all beautiful in their different way but there are some really special spots I think definitely if you are at pretty much anywhere on Pritchard Hill which is not an actual ABA it's a geographical designation so so Pritchard Hill is it technically should be its own ABA the problem is and I shouldn't say problem but Chapelet which is at the very top of Pritchard Hill and and Mm -hmm. one of the first wineries on Pritchard Hill or established wineries in Pritchard Hill they actually trademarked the name Pritchard Hill and uh, yeah so there's never been an opportunity for an actual ABA called Pritchard Hill to exist so it's sort of an unofficial ABA but where it is it 
it sits on the eastern side of the valleys. So on, you know, the Howl Mountain side, though it's not mm-hmm. technically Howl Mountain. So it's just south of Howl Mountain. And it's sort of spans between St. Helena and Rutherford, which goes a little bit down into the Oakville side as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this big, beautiful sort of like, it's a hillside mountain sort of we call it like the Rodeo Drive of Napa Valley because it's some of the okay. most famous, you know, expensive real estate in in Napa Valley. Ah. So Bryant family, Colgan, Colgan mm-hmm. yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Continuum brand, Ovid is up there and it, it really is amazing. And so pretty much anywhere in Pritchard Hill, you're going to have an incredible lookout okay. depending on where it's sitting on the mountain or on the hill. Mm. Um, it could have face all the way down towards the south and you could even see like San Francisco on a, on a clear day. Oh, fab. So that's that's one place. Um, but then if you wanted to be like on the valley floor, you would have a totally different exposition. And so there's a place called Frog's Leap that uh-huh. sits sort of right in the middle in Rutherford. And they have very um, expansive views that sort of, it would sort of be 180 because you could see the Vacas and the, the Vaca side and and the, the Mayakamas side. Mm-hmm. So you could see both ranges of mountains. And that's also when you said, where's your, you know, a great place to sip some Sauvignon Blanc and eat cheese. Like that's my favorite place to do oh, that. Okay. So specifically at Frog's Leap Winery. Yeah. Okay. I love that place. Ah. And it's just so sweet and simple. And they were some of the first to farm organically in Napa Valley. Okay. Good wine fact. This is what I'm hoping as we kind of talk, you're going to come out with these lovely little wine facts that I would have no idea about. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to learn on the way. Um, you mentioned Inglenook quite a few times haven't Mm, you now mm -hmm. Inglenook as far as I believe they're one of the oldest aren't they in Napa they are one of the oldest they actually might claim the oldest actual winery oh really so they have an interesting story because you know today it's owned by Francis Ford Coppola Mm -hmm. who of course you know yes famous famous. Mm -hmm. films like The Godfather (laughs) so Coppola owns it he actually bought the winery in the 70s but before that it was Gustav Niebaum who owned it and it was you know a winery that I think dates back to the 1800s Mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me on that one, but you know, had a really, really amazing legacy of winemaking in in Rutherford until it was sold in the 70s. And I think, you know, it really it took a hit a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think in the last few years, we've really seen it come back to life. And Francis really has invested quite a bit of money and actually bought the Inglenook name back. So he didn't when he bought the winery, he didn't actually own the Inglenook name. Oh, um, really? It was, yeah, it was Nibam Coppola. So Bought the Inglenook name back and then hired Philippe Pasquale from uh, Chateau Margaux, who's the head consulting winemaker. Chris Phelps, uh, who's sort of the on the ground consulting winemaker who famously was the original winemaker at Dominus um, ah. because he had, he had worked uh, for for the Moax family in Bordeaux, uh, who owns Chateau Petrus. Mm-hmm. So he had made Dominus from 83 to about 95. And then there's another winemaker who is on the ground. Uh, so it's, it's a team of three pretty special individuals who are making those wines right now. And I think, you know, there's some of the most exciting that are happening. But 60s Inglenook is to me, you know, some of the best wine ever made in Napa Valley. And it, you know, once you start getting into the 70s, that's when like things start getting a little bit weird in that era. But 60s (laughs) Inglenook, 50s Inglenook, like that is some killer, killer juice if you can find it. They're just incredibly difficult to find. And when you do, I don't find that the provenance is ever as quite as good as I want it to be. They're probably the hardest wines for me to find right now. Okay, right. I love that. And I love all the name dropping you've done. So people can actually understand the (laughs) winemakers and the people behind it. That's so brilliant. So Inglenook are in Rutherford, aren't they? They're in Rutherford uh, on the 
western side. So right as you would get to um, like where BV is and, you know, sort of what I would consider like the heart of Rutherford, which is where Rutherford Grill is, Mm -hmm. you know, right before you get to that, it's on the left hand side. And it has like an entrance sort of like Disney World. It's very beautiful. And some of the original buildings are still intact. And I think part of the original cave is still intact as well. It looks like Disney World. I love it. It does kind of look like Disney World. I love that. Okay. But to be honest, am I right in thinking as well that just all up Napa, all of the wineries are kind of almost like competing with each other to be like the biggest and most interesting, exciting looking architecture. Like there's a lot of cool designs, right, in Napa? Well, I think there was this push for that in in the 90s and 2000s when Napa Valley was really starting to get popular. And that was sort of what we might consider the second renaissance, the first being in the 60s with, you know, Robert Mondavi Mm -hmm. and the winemakers really starting to put Napa Valley on the map as a wine growing region. But then in the 90s, that's when we really started to see the big push for tourism. And so, yes, to some extent, I'd say there is competition in that regard, but we're also a protected area and that there's no real like big new construction that you can do in Napa Valley. It's Mm. an agricultural preserve. So it's essentially like a land trust that you can't really put any new vineyards or new properties on without very, very difficult legislation to go through. So you don't see like large monstrosities in Napa Valley. I mean, I think you know, we did start seeing a few people start to like push the boundaries, but there's nothing really that's built very high. It's just, you know, it's all very beautiful and it's all very different. Um, Mm But it is sort of Disney World-esque in that there's two main roads that go up and down Napa Valley, Highway 29 and the Silverado Trail. And when you drive up or down both of those, you sort of look left, look right, and you see all those like famous wineries that you've seen your whole life when you're going through the wine shop. And it it is sort of like Disney World in that regard because they're all super famous. And, you know, it's it's like being an adult in Disney World and you get to see Mickey Mouse for the first time. (laughs) I think I would feel exactly that way. Now, you mentioned those two roads, the two routes. They are basically the only two roads through Napa, right? Oh, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few. I mean, there's roads that go across and certainly you could come over the mountain. But there are two roads that, you know, I I say run parallel officially. They're not parallel, Mm. but run parallel to each other. One closer to the Vaca side um, and then one closer to the Mayakama side. But yes, they are. They are only two roads, which, you know, makes the fires all that a bit more scary because when fires happen you know there's only two real exit routes well let's get to that then just very quickly I don't want to talk about anything too depressing but the glass fire Mm -hmm. that started this September thankfully it's contained now what I heard was it it did touch Napa but just so what actually happened inside Napa well it was it didn't just touch Napa I mean it it was there it Mm. was yeah it was um it was the worst we've seen I think everyone would agree with this was the fire that I think no one really ever saw coming because Mm -hmm. we've been so lucky in years past and even in 2017 you know huge devastation over on Mount Veter and down in Stag's Leap District and some wineries sort of up in the mountains there but I think this you know this was in the northern part of the valley in St. Helena and it was it it burned pretty bad um I think you know, we, we had a rough year in the sense that it wasn't just this fire. It was, there was a fire over in Sonoma. There was also the mm-hmm. lightning complex fire that brought in a lot of smoke to the valley during the latter days of our ripening season. And so there was some concern about smoke taint in those early days. And it was interesting because right before the glass fire broke out, the real 
issue was the winemakers were trying to get all of their grapes tested for guayacol, which is the smoke compound ah, in grapes. that's what it's called. And it's called guayacol. guayacol. So that's one of the main compounds. Mm-hmm. So, and it's bound in sugar. So what you have to do is actually take the grapes and get them through a fermentation so that you can test it for guayacol. And interestingly, guayacol is also present in oak. So a lot of time, you can't oak the wine until you actually get it tested. Mm-hmm. So what was happening is there was such a push and demand for all of these test results to come back. And it was right before um, anyone was you know, really starting to harvest. ETS, which is the main lab in Napa Valley, was so backed up. It was like a three to four week wait that a lot of winemakers were sort of working blind, not really knowing whether or not they had smoke tainted fruit. And so that was a big concern before the glass fires broke out. And then once that happened, you know, it was sort of like... It was very pocketed you know some people were like it's fine we're just going to run with it some people have their own labs that they can do it so mm-hmm. i think once again it's going to be a situation where 2020 you know you, we can't blanket statement the whole vintage and say it's it's a write-off we can't blanket statement and say the whole thing is going to be great because i think there's just going to be a lot of extenuating circumstances that mm. will make it so that some people will have you know really great wines and some people will just not make a vintage but what i will say is that you know napa valley has a lot to lose by putting out bad wine and none of our good producers are going to put out a wine that they're not proud of so we'll see i think you know for me personally this was the closest the fires had ever personally come to where i live in saint Helena. so it was about a half a mile from my home so it's even um, more so emotional yeah you know i think that's one of those things that you know living in a agricultural community that used to fairly quickly and i say used to but it's still it's emotional and it's you know it can be friends have lost homes and you know wineries are certainly um hurting especially after this this past year but the silver lining of all of that is it is such a a tight community and a community that helps each other Mm. and so i think once again napa will always just be a place that we're stronger if we're if we're all doing well and so it's a rising tide lifts all boats and so when one is down the whole valley's down and so you see a lot of teamwork and working together to find solutions so i think as much as it was a really challenging vintage i think you're going to see a lot of great come from it so good i'm excited to see no, what happens that's really, yeah. really nice and i suppose from well quite clearly what i heard of it only just touching napa is not correct but the other thing i read was that yeah, <laughs> oops no is it a lot of misinformation i it's oh. not you i think it's just very difficult to know even from me even being there it's difficult to know what is actually happening in the valley and mm. there, like i said there's so much misinformation so it's it's not you and certainly if anyone's listening and you thought otherwise i think you know it's it's just a, a function of the news not always getting it entirely correct (laughs) well that's happened before and it'll happen again won't it um (laughs) but one thing that i did read was the best thing right now is to go to napa to be a tourist there and that is going to really help napa again i hear there's like five million tourists a year which (laughs) is an extensive amount it's an astounding number considering how small we are. I mean, we're a county of 100,000. So, and only, you know, like in my small town of St. Helena, it's under 10,000 that live there. So, wow. yes, if you can imagine like your tiny town being infiltrated with 5 million people a year, like that's what it's like to live in Napa. But yes, I mean, we're a we're a tourist community. We're an area that needs that sort of business, that traffic. And so we were definitely hurt in 2020. But I hope, um, you know, California has not been the most lenient when it comes to shutdowns and and, uh, and, and openings. So I think California to some degree just shut down again. But I think, you know, by the time everyone's ready to travel again, once those bans are lifted, yes, I mean, let's get to Napa. And it is such an amazing place to visit. I can't believe you haven't been there yet. It's on the list. And actually, it's probably genuinely one of the top places in terms of wine regions that I've really wanted to go to. But, you know, 
with the whole of Europe to visit and being able to just pop there for a weekend you can imagine that California hasn't quite got the tip yet but it it will get there it will get there no interesting what you said about how it's such a tight-knit community in Napa from what I've read because you know everything I read is true 95% of the wineries are family owned you know actually there's not a great deal of big big wineries in Napa Valley and that perhaps is part of why everyone's quite together perhaps yeah 95% sounds correct I actually don't know that yeah that sounds that sounds right we'll go with that I think a lot of people think that's the thing about Napa and especially when I was in New York I cut my teeth on more European wines and Barillos Mm -hmm. and Burgundy and Champagne and Bordeaux and I sort of had an opinion about Napa Valley wine before I moved out there. And okay. I'm sure to some degree, a lot of people do. And I think that opinion stems from the parkerization of Napa Valley, which still sort of, there is a, a parkerization sheen to some extent mm. on, on the wines of Napa Valley. But I think we're really starting to come out of that era and into what we would maybe consider something that's a little bit more classic in style, meaning like the wines that we saw from the 60s and 70s. So wines mm-hmm. that had maybe more of a sense of place versus like a style consistent style so what do you feel in terms of because you said Robert Parker has visited you guys in press restaurant and of course Robert Parker Mm -hmm. has done a great deal around the world some people love him some people maybe don't and it is that for anyone who's listening and you say what does what's the park style that darker bigger fruit Mm -hmm. bolder concentrated style in Napa Valley is he seen as (laughs) I don't want to say a hero Um, is he held up with high regard or is actually a lot of winemakers kind of fed up of it well I think the opinion is that right now we have the ability to look at it with a, a different lens I think you know when Parker was what I would consider in like in his heyday. So mm-hmm. I, I would say from 97 through maybe earlier than that. Um, I mean, obviously he got famous for talking about the 82 vintage in Bordeaux, but I think Napa for, as it pertains to Parker, really we started to see a major, major influence starting with the 97 vintage. And the 97 vintage was really unique because it was a hot vintage, but it was also a, an enormous vintage. Mm. So what happened was 97, you had a nice warm, long growing season, but there was so much fruit out there that not all of it could actually fit in the winery. And so what you had was fruit come in that was ripe, but then you'd have another third to even half of the fruit still sitting out in the vine. And they would have to wait until they had room in the winery to let that the initial crop load ferment and get into barrel. And so what would happen is that fruit was staying out on the vine and it would have extended hang time and get extremely, extremely ripe. And when those scores came in after the 97 vintage from Parker and it was a heavily praised high scoring vintage, that was when you started to see the press to make more high octane, high alcohol, heavy Mm. extraction, more time in new French oak wines. And so you saw from 97 until probably about 2008, 2010, you know, maybe pushing into 13. um, Although I think that's when the pendulum just started to tick back a little bit. You started to see a lot of wines with a a bit more homogeneous personality, meaning Mm -hmm. the wines were, you know, very big, over 15%, very juicy, very plushy, soft, soft tannins, drinkable wines that were probably more for, I'll say the American palate. So that's sort of like Coca-Cola palate. Um, So, you know, we say that lovingly now, but I think, you know, that was a style that got you points, got you praise, mm-hmm. got you customers. And so, you know, Parker had a following. So when people were would make these wines that were getting 100 point scores or really high scores in, from Parker, they were making money. And so they were incentivized to do that. I think, you know, winemakers now, how do they view it? They view it as a style, as an era and a 
an opportunity for people to get more into wine and to spend more money on wine than they ever had mm-hmm. before. Mm. So I think it's sort of a, a mixed bag of emotions and how they feel about Parker because, you know, Parker is the reason that Napa Valley is as famous as it is. And it's the reason that people will spend as much money as they will. Um, you know, do I think that all wineries are making are chasing scores or chasing points now? No, I think a lot of people have seen that as an era that sort of has fizzled a little bit. I think, you know, obviously everyone wants high scores and Robert Parker isn't really critiquing wines anymore. So now you've got other critics like James Suckling and Lisa Prati Brown and Jeb Dunnick, Antonio Galoni. And I think they all have different palettes. So the score chasing isn't as prevalent, but you know, for me personally, Parker, I have a job because of Robert Parker and I I immensely respect what he's done Mm -hmm. for wine. And, you know, I I think he's a great guy and I think he had a lot to say. And I think he, uh, he did amazing things for for California and for American wine in general. So I think we're starting to see a, a real swing back to back out of that style and into wines that have more of a sense of place and more of a sense of restraint and balance. But I think, you know, it's California. It's hot. It's warm. Like, you, know, <laughs> you don't want to go. We're, we're never going to make Bordeaux. Be Bordeaux. Yeah, exactly. No. Anyway, I like solid conclusion. I like that. It's a good summary yeah. of Robert Parker. Now, let's talk about the wines and maybe the flavors and the grapes. For anybody who is into Napa Valley wines, of course, they will know the number one grape variety is Cabernet Sauvignon. But I've seen now, of course, this must be very small production still, but Italian varieties are starting to be planted now. There's a lot of kind of maybe more natural winemaking going on. We'll mention Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. Let's get the the main ones. And of course, Pinot Noir down in Carneros. But is there some other grape varieties that are starting to shine? Something that is a bit more unusual that people wouldn't expect? Well, I don't know if we would call it unusual, but I think what's inter- a more interesting statistic is Cabernet Franc, starting Ooh. about two or three years ago, started to become the highest dollar amount per tonnage. Ooh. So, you know, if Cabernet Sauvignon goes for an average of $7,000 per ton, Cabernet Franc was like 10000 And that has a lot to do with supply and demand. But what we all are seeing is Cabernet Franc as a standalone variety or as the dominant variety in a blend. So I think that's... That's interesting. That's interesting. It's not an interesting grape because, you know, obviously we we see it on the right bank of Bordeaux as, you know, something mm-hmm. that sits front and center. And of course, you know, in a, in a different capacity in the Loire Valley, you know, where it's Chinon and a little lighter and brighter. But I actually really think that you're going to start seeing a lot of wineries start to make Cabernet Franc alongside their, their big Cabernet Sauvignon. So, and we're seeing it already. I mean, you know, Chapelet makes one. Mm-hmm. brand on Pritchard Hill. They Ooh, make a proprietary okay. blend that's Cabernet Franc heavy. Famously, and, and they've done so for a very long time, is the Dalavale Maya. Um, the Maya has always been a very, very Franc heavy wine. Okay. And I think it was interesting for me for a while because at press, we had, I think for a solid like three months, there's always like seasons for what's happening in the valley. And I, there's like a season for when the winemakers meet with the investors. And so they come for dinner at press and they you always you see it like all the time and they'll order the wines that I think that they're sort of inspired by and want the investors to be inspired Uh by and so there was like a solid couple of months where we were having winemakers come in with their investors or with their clients and they would order things like Dalavale Maya because they were like we really love Cabernet Franc and working with it and understandably so it's Mm. a it's a very interesting variety very aromatic and when blended with a nice percentage of, of Cabernet Sauvignon you know gives the impression and the allure of the texture of Cabernet Sauvignon but I think it's 
far more complex and has the nuance and the character of something that is beautiful and ethereal and soft and sort of whimsical. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So I, I think... Yeah. And, you know, Italian varieties, yeah, we're seeing a little bit like there's little pockets where you see young winemakers that are excited about (laughs) varieties that are that are not Cabernet Sauvignon. And certainly there's a push for Charbono, um, which is which is also known as Bernarda. Oh, oh, right. So Mm -hmm. Charbono is one of the original grapes plants. Actually, famously, Inglenook made it for a very long time in the 60s. But you're seeing sort of a a resurgence of the Charbono grape, thanks to a couple of producers, Matt Morris being one of them, Um, you know, tiny, tiny little pockets of production, but it's, I don't think it's going to be something that we're seeing take over Cabernet Sauvignon anytime soon. I will add into the the conversation. You do have a strong contingency of producers that are experimenting with other varieties because of their beliefs on climate change. Okay. So producers like Larkmead and Spotswood that are starting to plant varieties more like Sicilian varieties that can handle heat better uh, yeah, to see how, how they perform. Exactly. Mm, okay. So, um, you know, I don't think that we're, we're seeing them on a commercial level quite yet, but, you know, something to potentially look for in, in 15 to 20 years. I mean, I was quite shocked. I saw, um, I'm probably pronouncing their name wrong, Kongsgard. Is that how you call mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was just with a double A. I've yeah, always wondered. It. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nailed it. Yes. Nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. Um, Kongsgard, they do an Albarino. Very, very, very small production, apparently. Very little of it. So have you ever had the pleasure to taste it? Oh, yeah. Oh. No, I, I, so Kong, Kongsgard is, uh, John Kongsgard is a, a very famous winemaker in Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. He's actually responsible for sort of these bigger, oakier, more, we'll call them, <laughs> their techniques came from Burgundy, although we would be wrong in calling them Burgundian in style these days. But um, yeah, John Kongsgaard worked for Newton for a long time. And so he was the one that was responsible for the Newton unfiltered Chardonnay. Um, okay. But famously makes one of the most expensive Chardonnays in California. I think the most expensive one in Napa Valley, which is the Kongsgaard Judge. It's a small, 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 very gravelly, older vineyard that's uh his dad was the judge in Napa Valley which is called why it's called judge Uh. but it's from his like front yard vineyard so it's a very special wine but anyway he his winemaker Evan loves Albarino and has an Albarino project called Ferdinand Mm. um and for whatever reason I forget how the story went but yes they decided to also make an Albarino under the Kongsgaard label I think to some degree because you know Evan really liked it I think it's Evan I hope that's his name (laughs) I've been afraid of it. I'm like 99% certain. If it's not Evan, I'm very sorry. But um, anyway, <laughs> I've had it several times. It's delicious. It is really, I think, restaurant only to my, at least in the States, okay. maybe not in Europe, but they really only sell it to restaurants. But it's delicious. It's it's minerally, but it's got texture. You know, mm. I don't think that it's something that we would think of when we think of like Richard Spicious Albarino mm-hmm. uh, with all the salinity and brightness, but it is really clean and crisp. It okay. just has that sort of like California kissed sort of nectarine, tangerine, Ugh. lemon curdy lusciousness underneath of it it's definitely Mm. like a a light wine and a bright wine but it definitely doesn't have like the crunchiness that i think we think of when we think of albarino with you know that's good like drinking salt water (laughs) in a good way no sea spray no sea spray no but that's really interesting but i just think it's fascinating you know that people can really get so much out of napa when it's not it's not just cabernet sauvignon now talking of cabernet sauvignon and talking about tastings Seeing as you've tasted the limited production Albarino, I would assume you've tasted Screaming Eagle and Scarecrow then. 
A time or two, A yes. time or two. <laughs> Would you care to give an opinion on both Screaming Eagle and Scarecrow, considering people listening, the majority, including myself, have never tasted these very, very expensive cult wines? Sure, yeah. What Funza wants to talk about, because they couldn't be more different. So <laughs> I guess we'll start, we can start with Screaming Eagle, okay. which... For both of these wines, the vineyard is of the utmost importance, but they again, they couldn't be more different. So Screaming Eagle Vineyard in Oakville, it sits right, uh, you can see it from the Silverado Trail, it sits just before, just south of the Oakville Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really cool about this vineyard is it's in this little pocket where you get, it's it's hot, it's Oakville. And, you know, we sort of make the comparison between Oakville and Poyac. So think like more gravelly soils, you get a lot of like red tufa, mm-hmm. volcanic soils, you know, really, really deep, intense mineral soils in in Oakville and so we're on the eastern side of that where the soils tend to be a little bit more red but where Screaming Eagle is it's this little pocket where they get sort of a consistent breeze and so it's a little bit like Santa Barbara where it's like you know they call it refrigerated sunlight so you get extended (laughs) hang time Uh so you get all of this heat but the grapes stay really sort of like nice and cool and so they get this really long extended growing season so it makes for an extraordinary vineyard Mm -hmm. um you know, Screaming Eagle sort of hit at a time that was just perfect. And so, you know, Jeannie Phillips owns the vineyard. And I don't know if, if you know the story, but like basically what happened was they were friends with the Dalavales, whose vineyard sits, you know, maybe as a crow fly as a half mile from where they are. You could sort of see it from Dalavale. It sits mm-hmm. sort of like up on the hill. And so they had started their project in, in the late 80s, like 1987, hired Heidi, an unknown Heidi Barrett at the time. Ah, okay, yeah. And Jeannie Phillips asked Heidi Barrett to make uh, their very first vintage of Screaming Eagle. Screaming Eagle had been selling their grapes to Behringer and a few other properties at the time. So if you have ever had pre-91, like 91 or before Behringer Private Reserve, a lot of that fruit came from Screaming Eagle. Ooh, good tip. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Heidi Barrett ended up making that wine uh, first vintage, 19. 1992 um, and famously got well now that's two double hundred point scores I think at the time it was an it was a hundred and a 99 plus but now they're both hundred point scores but mm. what's really interesting about Scream Eagle is that it is incredibly restrained and focused really mineral laden really 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 understated like think more Bordeaux than than Napa that Valley. is so it not is, what I thought it and I think for a lot of people they think it's you know going to be this big monster jammy you know what they exactly yes. they think of as like a big you know typical hundred point score it is the opposite I think people have lied to me oh that's it. <laughs> probably they, they're like oh yeah totally tasted it it was like jammy and delicious and gorgeous like no it wasn't you didn't drink it you lied Okay. I uh-huh. have never had that experience. How very And they are laser, laser focused when they come out, you know, not wines that I would consider pleasant, you know, early on in their, in their lives. Oh, okay. I think, you know, you can see where they're going, but I think they hold their cards close to the chest. Like it's a very intense, uh, grippy wine, not a wine that is after, you know, smooth, plushy tannins. It's a wine that loves texture. Um, like I said, it's just, it's very deep. It's very nuanced, you know, definitely there's new French oak on it for sure. And it's California. It's, you know, we're, we're not in Bordeaux. It is California, but I think there is definitely a sense of restraint. They're beautiful, beautiful wines that couldn't be more different than I think what I expected as well. I think I expected to get it and, and it to be, you know, really over the top, really inky, you know, juicy, juicy, juicy. It is so far from that. It's not even funny. Okay. So, so great for anybody who has a few thousand pounds. Um, that's a good one to go for them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as you do and how about the scarecrow opposite 
So that is the wine that is fairly over the top. That's so the chunky monkey. Okay. It's it's chunky, but it's again, it's not as it's very rich and it's very soft. And what's really interesting about Scarecrow is I, I have a client, he owns a vineyard, or I guess I had a client at press that used to order Scarecrow on the regular. And every time he would just say like, there is, they've had everyone in the planet. And he was like, there is nothing like Scarecrow. And I think he's right. And okay. a lot of it again has to do with the vineyard. So it's the JJ Cone vineyard, which is in Rutherford. And it's crazy, crazy, crazy old vines. I mean, these are like monster grandfather vines. <laughs> um, vines. And so this fruit I find, you know, is really, really silky and viscous. And so the wines are, are soft and they're plushy, but they seem to just have this like lift and a brightness about them. But for me, like Sierra is all about, you know, really soft, uh, strawberry, kirschy, um, you know, it's a jammy-esque wine, but not a jammy wine in a bad way. It's mm. just like, it has the smells and the aromas of like a strawberry jam, okay. but it actually has like a lot of depth and complexity. It's got uh, a softness to it and a viscosity to it that's sort of otherworldly. And it, it is a delicious wine, but it is, it is big and it's soft and it's plushy. And, you know, I don't know where, where the alcohol sits, but I think I'm sure it's above 14 fives. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Silly Walsh has made that wine for forever. Uh, I think their very first vintage was 2004. Also famously, the Etude single vineyard from Rutherford, JJ Cohn Vineyard, which is uh, a wine that Tony Soder made for years. That's from that vineyard and they taste remarkably similar so I think you know it is all about the vineyard when it comes to Scarecrow okay very interesting and that one if anyone's excited uh about trying this wine it's only going to set you back maybe uh, 600 700 800 pounds I'm not entirely sure but that one's a bit cheaper (laughs) yeah yeah it is cheap it is it is cheaper the Scream Eagle is still the most expensive wine in Napa Valley oh absolutely and definitely all these are on allocation in general aren't they so not exactly easy to come by just I suppose one question uh, to finish off with in terms of Cabernet Sauvignon. I think that the mountain fruit, mountain Cabernet Sauvignon is starting to get a lot more interesting. People have always just, again, we talk about these big, chunky Napa Valley wines. Could you shed some light on just your feeling about the Cabernet Sauvignons coming from a lot higher up in the mountains? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's two sets of mountains and then there's sort of some diversity within that and so you've got spring mountain we'll just sort of generalize here spring mountain how mountain mount veter and then sort of like everywhere else right so mm-hmm. i think where where we'll focus on is you know we'll start with spring mountain spring mountain is what they say is the coolest wettest of the avas but it it's also um a place where i think the wines have the most restraint and the most herbaceousness to them okay. so they are still big, big wines because I think again, like we're talking about a region that that gets that has a, a Mediterranean climate, generally a fairly long growing season. But these wines are a little bit more herbaceous. When you're talking about How Mountain, those are the wines that probably have the most intensity and the most uh, the most body to them. I think okay. you know How Mountain again, like is a region that you could delineate between from producer to producer. But if you were to categorize how mountain, you would categorize it as like big, strong, muscular tannins, um, you know, really, really dark profiled fruit. Conversely, you've got Mount Veter, which is going to be across the way on the Mayakama side of the mountains, mm-hmm. um, sort of further towards the south. So famously, like Mayakamas is a producer there. And those wines 
to me have a little bit more of a, a high toned feel to them when it comes to the fruit. So just lifted and almost mm-hmm. like almost Italian in nature. Okay. So that's sort of like not VA, but like, you know, that high toned mm-hmm. uh, lift brightness, you know, super focused, lots of cranberry, um, maybe leaning more towards like the purple side of the spectrum for fruit. Okay. Um, and I find those wines are not quite as tannic and rich and like, you know, just muscular. I mean, they're still mountain wines, especially as you get, you know, over 1400 feet elevation. They're still big wines, but I think they have a little bit more focus and less of that broad shoulder that like the How Mountain Wines do. Hmm, they're beautiful. I love all of the mountain wines. They're, just, they're so different. <laughs> I, just, I think that just kind of sums things up because we, we would need to speak for another hour, wouldn't we? Because also the, <laughs> the soils, everything is diverse. It's not just Napa full stop, um, but it's just nice to know that, you know, people realize there is the fertile valley floor and then there's everything going up. And so mm-hmm. they're just hopefully gives people just that tiny suggestion that my god pay attention if you ever get a napa valley wine if it has one of the sub appellations because quite clearly there is so much to offer and they're very versatile and very different right yeah and like i said it's only 30 miles by five and within that we contain half of the world's geological soils types well there you go another fun fact yeah that's a good summary Yeah. Thank you <laughs> so much. Honestly, I, I want to know more. I need to know. And I think everyone's probably listening has realized how much you know. Officially, I am knighting you as the Napa Valley Queen. Well, thank you. Oh, you are so welcome and very deserving of this very prestigious award that I've just given you. <laughs> there, there, there's, there's no prize. It's just virtual, like most things. It's a virtual prize. Perfect. You're welcome. But anybody who wants to listen more, again, it's just Son Vivant on YouTube and on Instagram and then it's Wine Access Unfiltered. Yes, Wine Access Unfiltered, exactly. There we go. And they can listen to you chatting. And the nice thing about your podcast is that it's about wine, but you're chatting with sports stars and comedians and it's actually a very relaxed feel. It, yeah. It's a good old gossip as well as touching on different wines that you're drinking. Yeah, I, we sort of equated it to like the fun conversations we were having with guests at the restaurant that weren't in the business and just, you know, a wine podcast that's not necessarily about wine. It's about the conversation and, you know, we, we sort of bob and weave around the wine and you know have some good laughs and a good chat and that's what it is all about thank you so much Amanda you're fantastic keep up all your amazing media appearances because I'm certainly enjoying it and I know everyone else will be as well oh thank you so much I will absolutely do that bless you take care and I'll speak to you soon so during that chat Amanda touched on Robert Parker who created the 100-point system, which, of course, is generally used today when scoring wines. But the other person she mentioned was Stephen Spurrier, who maybe you do or don't know. Stephen Spurrier is British, and for those of you who like to read the Decanter magazine, you will find him in there. He always has a column, and I think he is the consulting editor for Decanter. He's written several books, and for those of you who love English wine, he, in fact, makes a wine called Bride Valley, and that's down in Dorset. Now, what probably made him most famous was in 1976, which was the Judgment of Paris. Now, if you don't know about the Judgment of Paris and you want to have a bit more of a fun way to find out, I highly advise you to watch the movie Bottle Shock. Now, Bottle Shock is set in California. At the time, Stephen Spurrier had his own wine shop in Paris. Now, this is all true. It's also true that he decided he wanted to put Californian wines against the top French wines. So this is your Bordeaux and your Burgundies. However, 
Disclaimer, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. In the movie, they do make out that Stephen Sperrier was so behind Californian wine that he did this tasting to prove how good Californian wines were. This is not actually fact. If you do meet him, he will openly tell you <laughs> that he really truly believed that the French wines were better and he wanted to kind of put an end to this story <laughs> that Californian wines were doing well. And so he did this blind tasting, expecting the French to do fantastically, of which they did not. And it was two wines that came in first place, both from Napa Valley. Beating all of the top Burgundies was Chateau Montalena, 1973, and then beating the Bordeaux was Stag's Leap Cabernet Sauvignon, 1973. So this went on to really put Napa Valley wines on the map. So you can probably see, intention or no intention, Stephen Spurrier did amazing things for the reputation of high quality wines from California. So I'm going to finish with a wine quote from Alan Rickman, who was playing Stephen Spurrier in Bottle Shock. So as Stephen Spurrier in the movie, he says, great wine is great art, my friend. I am in effect a shepherd whose mission it is to offer the public another form of great art and to guide its appreciation thereof. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, do go and check it out. Now, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let me know. Amanda's fantastic, right? Whichever app you're listening to, make sure you've subscribed, you've liked and you have commented. Please share with all your wine-loving friends and don't forget there are the exclusive episodes if you'd like to come and join the team at patreon.com slash eat sleep wine repeat. So until the next episode, cheers to you.